welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Monday, May 6th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, how gender bias plays into the electability problem, Buttigieg is the latest candidate to visit Jimmy Carter's Sunday school class, Cory Booker's plan to end gun violence, and new polling shows Republicans are even more enthusiastic than Democrats about 2020. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. In an article for the Washington Post, Amber Phillips lays out data and analysis about gender bias in the presidential primary. It is a super compelling read, and I urge you to read the link in the show notes. It's actually not a very long story, but some of the charts are mind-blowing, and the quotes from voters are amazing. Okay, reading the second paragraph in Phillips's piece here. Quote, Recent polling suggests Democratic primary voters, skittish about what happened to Clinton in 2016, are skeptical a woman can beat President Trump in 2020. It fits neatly into research that demonstrates female politicians are held by voters to a much higher standard than men, forcing women to work harder to prove everything from their policy chops to likability, end quote. And now we get into a topic that so far I have mostly avoided on this show. It's not the gender thing per se that I've been avoiding. It is this overwhelming discussion of electability. I spend many hours every day reading articles about this primary, plus a bunch of inside baseball stuff about politics in the U.S. in general. And there is a ton of discussion around this idea of the distinction between who you, as a voter, think would make a great president versus who can get elected in a head-to-head contest with Donald Trump. So the Phillips article today starts putting numbers to this issue in the context of the highest polling women in the race, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. So here's an example, and I'm going to try something in audio that I'm basically stealing from a really old Air America show. Now, I don't have a slide whistle in the studio, but I can use my mouth noises to indicate when numbers go up or down. Okay, stay with me. I know it's stupid, but it can be helpful. Okay, so the first sets of data Phillips compares come from an April 30th poll conducted by Quinnipiac University. These questions were asked of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters, and we're comparing two questions here. First question, who would you vote for today? Okay, so basically I read that as, who do you think would be a good president, right? But the second question is, who has the best chance of winning against Trump? In other words, who do you think is electable? All right, we're going to compare the numbers between those two questions. Who do you want to vote for versus who do you think can win? So let's take Warren and start with who you want to vote for. She got 12%. But when asked who could beat Trump, she goes down to 3%. Uh, that's a lot. Okay, more data on the women candidates before we go further. Kamala Harris, again, starts in that first question about who you want to vote for at 8%. But then, whether she can beat Trump, she goes down to 2%. She goes from 8 to 2. And Warren goes from 12 to 3. Now, next up is where the gender thing clearly shows up in the data. If you take Bernie Sanders, for instance, he starts at 11%. And then, he goes up to 12%. So in other words, generally voters seem to think that Sanders is more electable than they think he is the candidate they would like to vote for. 
And then the other massive data point is Joe Biden. So keep in mind, this poll was conducted after Biden entered the race. So it's not some theoretical exercise. It is recent data and it reflects the current field. Okay, so Biden started out at 38% in the first question. Now, obviously, he is far and away the best number in the field there. But, by the way, Warren is the second choice at 12%, beating Bernie Sanders in terms of voter preference. But all right, so what happens when you go from the who do you want to vote for question to the who can beat Trump question? In that one, Biden goes from 38% to 56%. Now, just to emphasize, there is even more data pointing to this being related in some way to Biden and Sanders and their maleness. For instance, let's take Cory Booker, another man. He starts at 2%, but then goes up to 3% against Trump. Now, yeah, both of those numbers are low, but that's a 50% bump. You do have two men, though, most notably Pete Buttigieg, who go down. Pete Buttigieg goes from 10% down to 4%. And O'Rourke goes from 5% to 3%. Now, these are both white men, just like Sanders and Biden, who top the electability chart right now, but they both lose substantial points. So it's not solely a matter of gender, but every woman included in the poll lost almost all her support in the second question. And I think that's what matters when Democrats try to figure out why this is and what to do about it. And Phillips has some ideas, obviously, from her piece, quote, an April Suffolk University poll of New Hampshire Democrats asked those who said they wouldn't vote for Warren, why? A plurality, 18%, said it's because she can't beat Trump. A noticeably high amount, 10%, said it's because she seems angry. Another gender-related hurdle that research shows men don't have to jump over to win votes, end quote. I mean, that feels true to me. Sanders, for example, is somebody who seems angry all the time. That's part of his brand. He's fed up with stuff, right? But he doesn't lose points for electability. He gains them. Okay, we are going to cover more about electability on future shows because it is a core function of what Democrats are doing when they select a candidate in this primary. But I want to leave you with one more notable segment from the Phillips article. Quote, It's likely not a coincidence that Warren and other female candidates for president have detailed policy proposals on everything from student loan debt forgiveness to affordable housing. Warren is selling campaign t-shirts that say, Warren has a plan for that. By contrast, Buttigieg and O'Rourke, two men with relatively thin resumes running for president, have been piecing together their platforms as they run. End quote. All right, this next story kind of tickled me, especially the twist at the end. So yesterday, Pete Buttigieg and his husband Chaston stopped by former President Jimmy Carter's Sunday school class in Carter's hometown of Plains, Georgia. The class was held at Maranatha Baptist Church. Okay, and a quick religious detail on which branches of the Christian church these folks come from. Carter is a Baptist, while Buttigieg is an Episcopalian, but of course, everybody got along just fine. In a Politico story, we got a few nuggets from the class. First up, the visit was unannounced, leading somebody in the crowd to ask why everybody was whispering when Buttigieg walked into the room. According to the AP, someone responded simply, that's Mayor Pete, the guy running for president. And just another reminder, Jimmy Carter is 94 years old, and he is still regularly speaking and teaching. 
And you can even order CDs and DVDs of his Sunday school classes. There's a link in the show notes to the Maranatha Church page about that and the FAQs and all that stuff. So photos of the class show Carter just like sitting on the carpeted steps on the front of the stage while a packed room looks on. A lot of them hold up their phone and they're just like, they're super into it. Carter got a laugh from the room when he arrived and noticed the people were murmuring about Buttigieg. Carter said, you know him? Also, before the class began, apparently a bunch of people took their moment to grab a selfie with the candidate and his husband. Carter spoke about how he actually had met Buttigieg before when Carter had been in Indiana doing Habitat for Humanity work and Buttigieg volunteered for a weekend. At one point, Carter invited Buttigieg to come up and read from the Bible, though none of the media reports I found actually said what the passage was. After the class, the Buttigieg's and the Carters, and yes, Rosalind Carter is also still going strong at age 91, they all went out and had lunch together. Now here's the detail I found most fascinating. Yeah, Buttigieg is showing up and hanging out with former presidents and their spouses, but he has done that before. He met with Hillary Clinton last Tuesday and Barack Obama last fall, for instance. But here's the thing. Buttigieg is actually the third candidate in this field to attend Jimmy Carter's Sunday School. Senators Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar have previously attended. And finally, a brief political history about Carter. The last time a Democratic primary field was this crowded was right before the 1976 election, which Carter won after a long primary campaign. In that cycle, there were 16 Democratic primary candidates, and Carter came out on top. Right now, we're at 22 candidates, and that will go up. When that primary in 1975 began, Carter was governor of Georgia, but he had basically no national profile, and he was considered a dark horse candidate to actually win the thing. But he won the primary, and then he just barely beat President Gerald Ford in the general, and then lost the next cycle to Reagan. So maybe giant primary fields are actually good for Democrats trying to unseat sitting presidents. Or maybe the 70s were just weird. Nobody knows. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Early this morning, Cory Booker announced a policy plan all about gun control. Let me read from his tweet announcing it. Quote, we need an aggressive approach to end the epidemic of gun violence in our country. My new plan would keep guns out of the wrong hands, hold gun manufacturers accountable, and bring the fight to the NRA, end quote. And by the way, for each of those three points, he used the green checkmark emoji, so bonus points there. 
Now, before getting into reading the plan, which was posted to Medium, I want to note one unusual aspect of the post. While every other candidate I've seen has written policy in the first person, like, I will do XYZ, Booker's plan is written in the third person, as if written by a staffer or something. The third paragraph begins, quote, This is a personal fight for Corey, end quote. Now, he doesn't say this is a personal fight for me. The whole time, it's referenced as Corey. Somebody's writing about Corey. This phrasing is very unusual for a 2020 primary candidate, but it is consistent with Booker's other campaign posts. This is how his campaign talks. Okay, so what's in the plan? Well, there is a ton of stuff in there. There are 16 distinct proposals, so I'm going to have to pick some of the top ones. And as always, there's a link in the show notes to read the full proposal if you want to get into all of the different stuff. So the first and most interesting idea is to create a licensing system for gun owners. Reading from the proposal, quote, Just as a driver's license demonstrates a person's eligibility and proficiency to drive a car, a gun license demonstrates that a person is eligible and can meet basic safety and training standards necessary to own a gun. Here's how it would work. Individuals could seek a gun license at a designated local office, widely available in urban and rural areas, similar to applying for or renewing a passport. They would submit fingerprints, provide basic background information, and demonstrate completion of a certified gun safety course. End quote. The policy acknowledges that some states already do this, we're looking at you here, Massachusetts, and says they can continue to do that as long as their program meets federal guidelines. Also, Booker suggests a five-year renewal term for gun licenses. Now, the next bit of the policy is super simple. It would allow the Consumer Product Safety Commission to perform oversight over firearms, which would allow for safety warnings and recalls for what Booker calls faulty firearms. Next up, Booker calls for a repeal of the PLCAA, which is the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. Now, this is a law passed in 2005, which effectively prevents individuals from suing gun manufacturers for a variety of reasons. And then next on the list is a technological idea called handgun microstamping. Now, I had never heard of this before, so I went and looked it up. I'm going to spare you the four paragraphs I wrote about this technology and just say it is a way to uniquely identify shell casings that have been fired from a given semi-automatic handgun. The Booker proposal also suggests closing a variety of loopholes on gun sales, most notably the so-called Charleston loophole, which means under current law, you can buy a gun in a private sale from an unlicensed gun seller without going through a background check. Basically, the Booker plan is calling for universal background checks on gun buyers, which is a very popular idea with American voters in general. It polls around 90%. He also specifies several specific methods to get there. Now, the rest of the policy document is a series of smaller but very specific points. I'll list some of them here. Booker calls for increased funding for research on gun violence as a public health issue. He calls for improvements to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, a.k.a. the ATF. He wants a ban on assault weapons and bump stocks. He wants a law requiring gun owners to report lost or stolen guns. And he has a series of proposals related to domestic violence and helping victims of gun violence with their recovery. And finally, Booker calls on the IRS to investigate the NRA's tax-exempt status. And even having said all that, there is actually more. There's lots more. So go read the piece if you want to hear all the details. Now, as always, with a policy proposal, I ask, how much will this cost? And it is not specified, nor is there any mention of how to pay for it. 
So it's unclear how exactly, for instance, the gun licensing thing would get paid for. You'd have to set up a brand new system to do that. You'd have to have offices all over the country to implement it. And like, are those existing offices that the federal government already has, like the passport stuff, and they just add the gun thing into it? Or are we talking about hundreds of new buildings? Either way, that proposal has to have some kind of cost, but it is not mentioned here what it is or who bears that cost. Is it a tax on guns? Or maybe is it part of his call for increased ATF funding? I don't know. Now, to be clear, a lot of the things the Booker calls for might have no real cost at all like closing certain loopholes or expanding the Consumer Product Safety Commission's oversight powers. That is just passing laws, and the changes implemented by those laws are relatively small. Now, as with all issues related to guns, reactions have been mixed. On Twitter, Amanda Marcotte remarked, quote, Considering that the term well-regulated is literally in the Second Amendment, there is no good-faith argument against Booker's idea of licensing gun ownership, end quote. Other Twitter commenters disagreed, and a good way to find those is to go find the link in the show notes to Cory Booker's tweet announcing the policy, and just scroll down. It gets messy real fast. And finally today, some new polling is in. In a new NBC News slash Wall Street Journal poll, evidence shows that it's not just Democrats who are excited to vote in 2020. I did mention this last week briefly, but now we have a second poll that seems to confirm the trend. Reading from the NBC News article about the poll, quote, 75% of Republican registered voters say they have high interest in the 2020 presidential election, registering a 9 or a 10 on a 10-point scale, versus 73% of Democratic voters who say the same thing, end quote. Now, it's only a two-point difference, but this is significant because heading into the 2018 election, Democratic enthusiasm led Republicans by double digits until right before the election. Right now, Democrats are slightly behind. Now, why might that be? I don't know. Polls don't give us answers like that. They just give us data. But the big point for Democrats is don't think y'all are the only ones showing up to this party in 2020, not by a long shot. The poll also showed that, quote, 69% of all voters expressed a high level of interest in the upcoming election. That's just three points shy of the 72% who said the same thing in October 2016. End quote. Yeah, let me back up and parse that thing for just a moment because I almost missed what it meant when I first read it. So in October of 2016, meaning literally the month before the actual presidential vote, 72% of Americans said they were psyched about it. Right now, today, more than 500 days before the actual general election, 69% of Americans say the same thing. That's just three points down. So this is going to be a big election, folks, like big turnout from everybody on every possible side. We can expect big money everywhere, and we have 500 days of this stuff getting bigger and more complex. So the takeaway from this poll for me is that yeah, there's a reason we have a daily podcast talking about the 2020 election and specifically the primaries leading up to that. Interest is extremely high on all sides, and you, my dear listener, are proof of that. We are in a historic moment for the Democratic primary. We've got more candidates right now than we did in 1975, and the podcasts back in the 70s, I mean, they were like hardly as good as this one, right? That's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. 
I want to take a quick moment to welcome listeners from the Longform podcast who heard about us last week. While this show is kind of the opposite of Longform, I think you might find something here to enjoy as well. All right, stay frosty, everyone, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.